Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, pause, we bow our heads into your presence this morning. And again, we thank you so much that you love us. We thank you, Father, that you loved us so much that you were willing to send your only begotten son to this earth, that, you, uh, that he was willing to empty himself and humble himself and become one of us. In order that, Father, he might go all the way to the cross and offer his life in our place, that we would never have to face the wrath that we deserve uh, from a perfectly holy God. And so, Heavenly Father, we uh, just delight in being able to worship you. We thank you for qualifying us through the blood of Jesus, through Christmas, and through the cross, and through the resurrection to enable us to be able to even face you this morning and stand before you uh, feeling totally forgiven, uh, feeling totally blessed, uh, recognizing, Heavenly Father, that you've accomplished some great things on our behalf, and you've achieved our salvation, and you've uh, uh, invited us to live with you for eternity. Uh, we look forward, Father, someday to being in a place called heaven where everything is right and all tears are gone. And in the meantime, Father, we thank you that you've sent your spirit to come and live in our lives, that we can represent you to the world that we live in at this point in time. And in spite of its uh, brokenness and its confusion and all the different things that are a part of our experience in this life, we thank you, Father, that you sustain us and that you've put within us a hope for the future that's better than anything this life knows. And as we look forward, Father, to the return of Jesus, I pray that you would make us faithful, that you would make us excited, that you would make us optimistic, that you would make us bold witnesses, Father, for your uh, message, for your kingdom's sake, for your glory, that people would come to know who you are and where we came from, that you created us, and that you love us, and that you want us to be with you for eternity, and that you sent Jesus in order that we might be qualified to do that. And so help us to understand, Father. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand you. And uh, help us, Father, to understand ourselves in order that we might un understand our place in this world at this point in time. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Before we uh, begin this morning, I oh, kids can be dismissed. I always forget that. Before we begin this morning, I wanted to uh, share with you just a, a short uh, passage of scripture that I think might uh, put in context kind of this series of messages about the second coming. Um, the Apostle Paul was at the very end of his life, and uh, he, the last thing, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, but the very last thing he wrote is the second letter that we have in our Bible uh, to Timothy. And in the last chapter of the last letter that Paul wrote just before he died, uh, here's what he said. He said, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul knew he was about to die. Okay, and I have three things. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I'm like, wow, I hope when I get to the end of my life, I can look back over it and say I have no regrets, like the Apostle Paul here. He's, he's looking back over his life. He says, I fought the fight. Part of the Christian life is a fight, is it not? Okay. Uh, I have uh, fought the good fight. I've finished the race. And, uh, and then he says, I've kept the faith. And then he says, henceforth, in other words, from now on or for my future, uh, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. Now, part of what's associated with the second coming is a number of different judgments. Judgments uh, against the world, against certain nations, and uh, there's a judgment for us Christians. And that judgment is basically uh, God rewarding us for the investment of our life that we made on his behalf. How we live our lives matters, and there is a a reward. And one of the ways that we are rewarded that the scriptures talk about is with crowns. And so Paul is saying, I'm looking forward to the crown of righteousness because I'm somebody who loves the Lord's appearing. I'm looking forward to the Lord's appearing, and I've lived my life that way. And somehow, in Paul's mind, that translates into righteousness. When you get to that point in your life where you know, you're really looking forward, and Paul says, all of us, right, all of us who uh, have loved his appearing will be looking forward to that crown, the crown of righteousness. Now, there's a number of crowns spoken of in the scriptures. There's the crown of glory. Uh, there's the cl- uh, uh, crown of um, uh, rejoicing. There's the crown of glory. There's the crown of life. There's the crown of imperishability or eternity. Uh, And so we are rewarded for how we invested our lives according to uh, what Paul says here. And he's looking forward to this reward. And then the next thing Paul says right after that, okay, and I'm going to try to contrast this for us. He says uh, to Timothy, he says, do your best to come to me, Paul says. Paul's lonely at the end of his life. And then look what he says here. He says, for Demas, who was one of his closest associates, in love with this present world has deserted me. Sad, right, that Paul gets to the, towards the very end of his life and he's kind of lonely. And, and I think anybody who uh, spends time with elderly people recognize that loneliness is a pretty big issue. And here's Paul, and he had this associate, Demas, and Demas, instead of loving the Lord's appearing and lo- looking forward to what God was going to do in his life through his lifetime and beyond, Uh, loved this present world. And so I think what I'm trying to do with this series of messages in talking about, I'm trying to provide a context in talking about uh, looking forward to the Lord coming back is to move us a little bit in our love uh, more in the direction of Paul and a little bit less in the direction of Demas. I want to love the world a little bit less and love the Lord's appearing a little bit more. Okay? Now, I think, and you can disagree with me if you wish, but I think that what you think about or what we think about and what we talk about the most is what we love. What we think about and what we talk about the most. You know, if you love your family, you're always thinking about them. You're always talking about them, right? If, if you, whatever we think about and talk about the most is probably what we love the most. And so, again, I'm trying to nudge us more in the direction of Paul, who's loving the Lord's appearing, and less in the direction of Demas, who loves this present world to the exclusion of looking forward and getting ready uh, for the Lord's return. And so I just wanted to share that with you as kind of a context for this uh, series of messages. Now, when Jesus came the first time at Christmas, right, Uh, When he came the first time, he was only here for a relatively short uh, period of time. 
but he left his unmistakable impression uh, on the world, uh, as you well know. As you know, you know, all of history is divided into B.C. and A.D., or what's called now the Common Era. Everything is, our calendars work on the basis of before Christ and after he came. And so uh, all of that was planned by God. And in the Bible, it says that when Jesus came the first time, it was the fullness of time. In other words, God, the timing of Christ's coming was perfect. It was all orchestrated by God. And uh, it was uh, surrounded by a number of events um, that were orchestrated by our Heavenly Father, and many of those events were written down in the scriptures long before the events ever happened. As I uh, shared with you, there's like 300 different prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus' first coming. And uh, many of them, you know, are uh, duplicates, but uh, God wrote them into his word before they ever happened. And I think this is uh, important because uh, in Isaiah, God says, listen, one of the ways that you can know that this Bible is my word is that I have put in it the things that are going to happen before they happen. There's no other book like the Bible in the whole world. And God says, one of the ways you can know that I, God, wrote this book is because who else can do that? Who knows the future but me? And uh, if you uh, take a look in Isaiah 48, uh, God makes the case for that. So when Jesus came the first time, he came with many promises, uh, fantastic promises, the promise of uh, God loving us. God so loved us that he sent Jesus into the world. Uh, the promise of grace, that God is not interested in dealing with us according to what we deserve, but God is interested in dealing with us according to his love for us, which is uh, grace, which is undeserved favor. God doesn't deal with us as we deserve, but deals with us according to his love. It's a great uh, promise that the Lord came with. The promise of eternal life, that death has been defeated, and that no matter what it looks like, it looks like, wow, at death, that's the end of everything. It's not true. And uh, Jesus, with his resurrection, promises us that if we put our trust in him, we too will live an eternal life. Uh, the promise of salvation, that someday God is going to judge the world and he's going to judge people's sins, and it's not going to be a happy day. It's called the day of the Lord. It's talked about all through the scriptures, and someday that's going to happen. But if we trust what Jesus did for us on the cross, uh, we don't have to worry about that. Uh, we will never experience the wrath of God because why? Jesus took it for us on the cross. Uh, and so the promise of salvation, uh, the promise of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God replacing the kingdom of this world, a new heaven and a new earth, a new experience to look forward to in the future, uh, one that's described as uh, an existence without pain and without tears and without all the headaches that come with this life. And you begin to think about all these different promises that God made. Well, one of the other promises that Jesus made is that he will come back. And he will take these promises and, and your faith will turn to sight. And you will see the enactment of these things. Uh, <clears throat> recently, Barb and I uh, bought some uh, cemetery plots, right? And so we went around to different cemeteries and had to figure out where we wanted to land. And um, I started to think about different people that I've 
helped bury in different places, right? And so we're standing there looking at these plots and whatever, and, uh, and I'm thinking about some of the people who are buried in this cemetery, and I'm thinking, how cool is it going to be to be resurrected out of the grave and be there with some of my friends, right? I mean, when faith becomes sight and that reality happens, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be a blast. You know, and I'm just wondering what's, uh, you know, how that, I, I try to imagine how that might be. So in the Bible, there are a number of places, uh, and i just read a couple of them. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended and uh, left us and went into heaven, you remember there were two men dressed in white robes, perhaps angels. And uh, here's what they said to the people who were standing by. Uh, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. Here's the promise, right? Uh, this Jesus who you're watching going up into heaven will come the same way uh, as he came. And here's another in Titus chapter 2. I love this section because it talks about Jesus' return as our blessed hope. Our hope. Uh, we're looking forward to this, right? And you'll notice in this passage, past, present, and future, okay? Watch this. For the grace of God has appeared, past tense. The grace of God has appeared when Jesus came the first time. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now the present, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. What are we supposed to be doing as a result of Jesus coming at Christmas? Well, we're supposed to be living godly lives. We're supposed to be uh, people ought to be able to look at us and understand what God is like and understand uh, what God has done for us. And then there's the future. The last uh, verse here, it says, uh, while we're doing that, we're waiting for our blessed hope. We're waiting for this hope that God wants to instill in us, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, who are filled with zeal and passion to do good works, right? Uh, to represent our God who wants to do uh, good works uh, on our behalf. And then there's one other passage of scripture. Let me just read this. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28 says this. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Again, same sentiment that the Apostle Paul had, right? Uh, for all those who love his appearing and are looking forward to and talking about, right? And thinking about what's it going to be like and what do I need to do uh, to be prepared uh, for that return of Christ? So I would say to you that the fact of Christ coming back is a non-negotiable absolute of the Christian life. The fact that Jesus is going to return. Now, just like Jesus' first coming at Christmas time, uh, his second coming is also surrounded by a number of events, right? And uh, all kinds of things are laid out in the scripture for us to be alert to and to be uh, cognizant of uh, that surround his second coming. And so when it comes to end times, I want to say that there are, uh, you know, apocalyptic passages that uh, are essentials and some that are non-essentials. 
And it takes wisdom to kind of sort that out and to figure out because lots of people have lots of different ideas when it comes to the future uh, about what these different passages of Scripture might mean. And uh, you might remember that uh, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus was with his disciples. And uh, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to tell you something. They were right around the temple area. He says, I'm going to tell you, there's going to come a time when the temple and the city and there's not going to be one stone upon a stone is going to be destroyed. And uh, Jesus uh, responds to them. And uh, he says, you see all of this, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then he sat down on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately and they said, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of this age? So that's a natural question, right? They're not the last people to ask that question. When we talk about the Lord coming back, one of the first questions that pops into our mind is, when is that going to happen? And that's what the disciples asked Jesus. When is this going to happen? And what will be the sign? How will we know that this is really it? Because down through the ages, people have speculated that, you know, now is the time and uh, people have even said dates sometimes and all of those things have passed and not come true. And so uh, it's important to kind of stick close to the scriptures and uh, Jesus, you know, tell us when this is going to come and tell us about the close of the age. When this life that we're living, will it ever get better? Uh, does God have something in store for us that's actually better than this life? And uh, can I look forward to that? And can I be assured that I'll be a part of that and so forth? And so people still ask those kind of questions today. Uh, will there be an end to this life? And when people start to ask these kind of questions about the future, there are two extremes, uh, it seems to me, that tend to happen uh, that we need to sort of guard against. And uh, one of them is that people start uh, reading these apocalyptic uh, pieces of scripture and start reading into everything end time scenarios. And uh, it gets to the point where, you know, these kind of passages can be an obsession uh, to the exclusion of everything else God had to say in his word. And so that's an extreme that needs to be avoided. But the other extreme, it seems to me, is that um, people do the opposite and they say, you know, it's just too confusing. It's too hard to understand. I've tried to read Revelation. I give up. I'm just not going to think about it anymore. And they ignore so much of what God wants us to have. And what I would suggest to you that when that happens, hope drains out of people's lives. And you know what? People start settling for this life and they don't live with a real sense of expectation. We don't do what Paul says, love the appearing, like live with a sense of expectation that, you know, and I think there have been uh, all down through the ages, you read some uh, uh, commentaries and stuff, uh, there have been people who have this sense of expectation and uh, current events feed into uh, what we read in the scriptures first and come to understand, and then we look to current events to say, you know, I wonder where we're at. I wonder when this will happen. What is the sign I should be looking for? All right, so then Jesus takes off on the disciples, and Jesus answers their question about when, what's the sign, and when is the end of the age? And uh, here's what Jesus says. He says, see to it that nobody leads you astray. Now, I say to myself, uh, you know what? Uh, it's easy to be led astray. Jesus' first concern is 
don't settle for anybody else telling you, don't listen to Dave DeVries because the pastor said X, Y, Z and think that that's it. I believe that what Jesus is saying here is we need to stick close to the word and we need to ask the Holy Spirit to confirm in us and in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls uh, to confirm his word so that we understand it as he would have us understand it. And uh, that we don't depend on, you know, what we've learned from traditions, maybe, uh, what we've picked up from our early days when we were kids, uh, and, and so on and so forth, but that we actually listen to the word of God. I think it's uh, significant that uh, Jesus starts off with this. Don't let anybody uh, fool you. Don't let anybody uh, confuse you. And I, I you know, in um, Luke's gospel, you, you remember the story of the two guys, uh, the couple that was on their way to Emmaus right after Good Friday happened. Jesus was crucified, and these two people are walking along, and they're having this discussion. And Jesus, kind of, some of you are old enough to remember uh, the detective program on TV, Columbo. Do you remember Columbo? Columbo would just kind of pretend he was somebody else and just kind of very casually, you know, get involved with. And so here's Jesus, like Columbo, right? He wanders up to this couple that's traveling down the road talking about all the events that happened when Jesus was crucified. And uh, in Luke 24, well, uh, here's what they say. Here's what these two people are saying. We had hoped. We had hope. We put our hope in this guy, Jesus. You know, we had hoped, all right? We put our hope there, and uh, we had hoped that this would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. We had hoped that he would free us from the Romans and we could establish our own, you know, new kingdom that's been promised to us and, and so on. And then Jesus said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? How come you guys don't get this? You're Jewish people. You've got Jewish scriptures. You've got prophets. I've sent prophets to you down through the age. You've got, you know, word of mouth that's been handed down from families and so forth. And then the next verse says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is like, you know, why didn't you guys recognize this as part of his first coming? And uh, I think, you know, when we ignore this second coming, we're kind of like the people on the road to Emmaus were confused. It's like, wow, I had hoped this, didn't you ever, you know, hope something was going to work out a certain way and then it doesn't and you're like confused and you're like, I was so sure the Lord was going to do X, Y, Z and then he did something different. And, uh, you know, and so I think that's why Jesus says stay close to the scriptures when you try to understand what's going to happen in the future. So I've suggested to you, uh, in the past, that there is a seven-year period of time based on uh, the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 in which God will finish his purposes for Israel as a nation. And uh, furthermore, I've uh, said that this particular seven-year period of time is divided uh, very specifically several times in the scriptures into two equal parts, three and a half years apiece. And it's talked about as times, time, and a half time, it's talked about 42 months, talks about 1260 year, uh, days uh, to these two halves of this time. 
And uh, right in the middle of this thing is when uh, somebody that the Bible identifies as the Antichrist or the lawless one, kind of a world leader, um, turns against Israel, reneges on the promise to protect her, and, um, and then everything kind of breaks loose. And so Jesus, uh, in response to the disciples' questions, uh, starts to unwind for them, I think, what is contained in these seven years. And uh, again, it's a warning to pay attention to the scriptures and not to allow anything else to get in our way uh, because uh, God has written the book. Um, Psalm 138, I, uh, no, 100 and, uh, yeah, 138 says, uh, for you have exalted above everything your name and your word. For you have exalted, you, God, have exalted above everything. You have no higher place that you could inquire of or that you could pursue to get truth from than God says, I've exalted my name. There's no name higher than mine. And I've exalted my word. There is no word. There is no place you can go that will give you uh, more truth than, or any truth other than the scriptures. And then Jesus begins to speak uh, about these issues. And uh, let me just read for you in Matthew 24. Uh, I believe he talks about four different uh, things that are going to happen. Jesus answered, see that nobody leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Many people will come, claim to be the Messiah, claim to be uh, the Savior of the world, if you will, and many people will follow after different people. Um, and you will hear, uh, first of all, so there's these false Christs, right? And then second, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Wars and rumors of wars. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. There will be shortages of food, and we in America probably have never really faced that, but in different places of the world, this is a very uh, intense reality. And there will be earthquakes in various places. And then Jesus says this in verse 8, all these things are but the beginning of birth pangs. This is bad, but it's going to get worse. And uh, again, I think he's talking here about uh, what's going to happen during this time in response to uh, the questions of the disciples. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that uh, what's going on on earth that Jesus is describing, uh, at the same time, we have an account in Revelation of what's going on in heaven. And I want to suggest to you that these two uh, passages of Scripture, Jesus' description of end times and Revelation, uh, are parallel each other. And they uh, comment on each other. And so I think it's important to kind of uh, see how these things Align, and so in um, you know in Revelation chapter one, and a lot of people I know steer away from Revelation, but in Revelation chapter one, it's just about the glory of Jesus, how great He really is. In Revelation two and three, we have letters from Jesus to seven different churches. Now, some people, you know, I think most people understand that they were literal churches that Jesus wrote to, but there are some people who have studied church history. And take those seven churches and say that those seven churches represent all of church history. 
And so uh, you can take, you know, the history of the church and these seven churches and the problems and the way Jesus addressed them and so forth and kind of put dates on and line them up. And it would, in other words, be a description of the church age. But that's chapter two and three. Uh, chapter four of Revelation takes us right into the throne room of God, uh, right into the place where God is, seated on the throne. And then uh, chapter five uh, is all about a scroll, a scroll that's in the right hand of the Lord God Almighty. And uh, this scroll is sealed with seven seals. So in other words, the scroll can't be opened up and read until the seven seals are broken. And then the scroll, the Bible says, is written on both sides, and the scroll is finally unrolled. And so in Revelation chapter 5, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, uh, I would suggest to you that one way to think about what is this scroll, I would suggest to you that the scroll is, can be thought of like the title deed to the creation. Who really owns the creation? Right? It's like the title deed of everything that was created, including mankind. Who really owns mankind? Because as you know from the scriptures, way back in the Garden of Eden, the whole creation uh, was hijacked, including mankind, hijacked at the very beginning. And that's why the Bible says that Satan, right, is the small g God of this world. Why do we have all these problems? Where do they all come from? Where do they originate? You know, before we blame God for the things that go wrong, we really ought to say, well, wait a minute, who is the small g God of this world? Who's pulling the strings here? And not only that, but in uh, Romans chapter 8, you remember, uh, the Bible says that the whole creation is waiting for the day the sons of God will be revealed. Because on that day, the bondage that the creation was put in by the curses that God put on in response to Adam and Eve's uh, failure, uh, on that day, the whole creation is waiting with eager longing to be released from the bondage that it's in. Why do things rust out? Why do, you know, why, does, why are we gonna have this you know, 60 mile an hour wind this afternoon? wipe out trees and take away our electricity. And what's going on with the creation? Well, in Romans chapter eight, it's a, a fascinating passage of scripture. But anyway, um, I just think it's important. So this scroll sealed with seven seals uh, in um, Revelation chapter five, verse two, uh, here's the scene in heaven now, right? We're in the throne room. And I saw a strong angel, not just any old angel, but a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? Who, who has the authority? Who has the credentials to read the deed as to who owns the world? And uh, now John, you know, wrote the book of Revelation, the apostle John, he was taken up into heaven. He's writing down what he sees for our benefit. And so uh, look at this in verse five of uh, Revelation five, it says, one of the elders said to me, stop crying, stop weeping. John was crying because nobody was found who could open the scroll. And I think John understood like, you know what? If nobody opens the scroll and settles who owns the universe and who owns mankind, we're gonna live like this forever. 
And John starts to cry. He's like, this can't be. There's got to be something better than this, you know? And so this elder, you know, uh, elbows him in the side and says, hey, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so Jesus grabs hold of this scroll, right? And um, when he does, uh, the whole place breaks out in song, in music. And uh, we sang part of it this morning, you know, about God being, uh, about Jesus being worthy. Listen to this in verses 9 and 10 of Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain on the cross, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, all of us, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. They shall reign on earth. Someday, along with the Lord, we will reign, right, over the earth once it's committed to Christ. What a difference it's going to be. But we will reign with him. And so this whole place breaks out, you know, in this song. And, um, and then when we get to Revelation chapter 6, Jesus begins to break the seals, okay? And let's just look quickly here. Um, it says, the first couple of verses, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked. And behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, no arrows, and a crown was given him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. False Christs coming out to take over, to take the world away from Christ, away from God, to Satan. False Christ. This is the four horses of the apocalypse, right? That um, are the first four seals. And so a white horse, right? In Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, he's riding a white stallion. And so uh, these are false Christs. And ultimately, out of this group of false messiahs and Christs uh, will come the Antichrist, right? And as other passages of Scripture reveal. Okay, when he opened the second seal, verse 3, I heard the second creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men slay one another, and uh, he was given a great sword. Remember what Jesus said next? Wars and rumors of wars between nations, right, and, um, and uh, alliances of nations. Third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, uh, and don't do any harm to the oil and, and uh, oil or wine and oil, uh, famine. You know, how uh, we might read into that inflation uh, and uh, different ways that you can look at that. I, was, I had dinner this uh, past week with um, a friend of ours uh, who uh, used to work for an oil company, and I asked him about, hey, what about the oil in end times? Why is the, such a concentration of oil uh, found in the Mideast, and what does it mean, and how do you... Uh, interpret with it because God placed it there. So, uh, and how's that all going to play out? So fascinating, you know, to just think about uh, where things are at in light of what's being said here. 
And uh, the next one, verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice, the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, and uh, with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth, and so on. The pale horse, pestilence, and sickness, and death uh, come, uh, come about. And then uh, in verse 8 in Matthew uh, 24, Jesus says, this is the beginning of birth pangs. The end is not yet. These are some of the things to watch for. Like, like so what if we know this? Well, uh, we want to be looking for, you know, is this happening? And uh, are we in this period of time yet or not? And, uh, you know, it helps us to know how to live in the present. And while these things uh, are going on in heaven and things are playing out on earth, um, uh, I think we uh, come to the place where Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, uh, you know, keeps going with what's next. And uh, here's what he says. And I believe that what Jesus is saying is we've passed now the midpoint and this Antichrist has manifested himself. And part of it, as we know from scripture, is that he will demand the worship of the world. And uh, how he makes that happen, if you read Revelation 13, it's absolutely fascinating in terms of uh, the, uh, <coughs> uh, the technology that we have today as to how this could actually play itself out. But anyway, um, so Jesus says, then they're going to deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Now, he's talking to the disciples, right? Uh, there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, this is all about Israel. It's not about Christians. But Jesus is talking to the disciples, and the disciples are the uh, core of the uh, Christian church, and, and he says they're going to deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom of God will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So while all of this is going on, it's our job in, in every generation to share the gospel with the people around us, to help people to know, hey, this is what's coming, but this is what God has provided for us, and to take advantage of his provision of salvation in Christ from the judgment that is sure to come um, when the Lord returns. Okay, so while that's going on, uh, I want to especially point out verse 15 to you. Uh, in Matthew 24, 15, the next thing Jesus says is this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, why do we say that Jesus is talking about that seven-year period? Because right here, Jesus links what he's saying to the prophecy in Daniel and ties it together. And Jesus himself is, is calling when the uh, Antichrist takes uh, you know, uh, his place in the temple, Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation. And uh, that is used in other places. But I think it's so important. We've been studying in the book of Daniel, and I understand that it's confusing, and I understand that there are different opinions. And please, if you have different ideas or you think I'm off, I'm still in the process of learning and growing, and I want more knowledge. So if you think that I'm off, come and, uh, you know, we'll have a cup of coffee downstairs or we'll find a time to have a cup of coffee and, and talk together. I would love that. So, uh, but 
I'm sharing with you where I'm at in terms of uh, my understanding, which has uh, evolved over the years. And uh, so when you see the abomination of desolation, he says, and he's talking now specifically to the people in Jerusalem, and he's saying, you know, don't go down into your house and pack the suitcase. Just get out of town because it's going to get bad because this guy is going to demand, you know, the worship of everybody. And if you don't, you're going to die. And so Jesus is like, don't, don't waste any time. Don't him and haw. Just get out of town and so forth. And, uh, and then he, he says this. For them there will be great tribulation. So the first part Jesus calls birth pangs, right? The second part of the seven years, I believe he's labeling great tribulation. Nowhere in the Bible is the full seven years talked about as the tribulation period. There's tribulation to be sure, but it's confusing when we just label the whole thing and don't recognize uh, the midpoint and it gets kind of confusing. We start thinking about it uh, in ways that the Bible doesn't endorse. Uh, For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be again. This is the worst time on earth ever. Why do we care about this? Well, I would like to know if that's going to happen in my lifetime. I would like to know what to be on the alert for, what to look for, right? And, uh, and then Jesus says this, and if these days had not been cut short, right, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, these days will be cut short. Now, in my view, and feel free to argue with me, I believe that these days are cut short by the rapture of the church. And if you read this in context and keep going, um, if anybody says, look, here's the Christ, there's the Christ, and so forth, don't believe it. And uh, if, again, uh, I forgot to go back, but if I go back to Revelation, right, right after the midpoint, we go back to Revelation, you know what the next seal is that unrolls the scroll, that uh, settles the issue as to who owns everything? The fifth seal, we did the first four. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. This is right after the great tribulation starts. The next seal is the martyrs who are under uh, the altar in heaven, right? And then Jesus goes on and uh, and he says, look, there's going to be a lot of false Christ. Don't follow them. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, uh, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, that's where the vultures uh, gather. And then he says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, immediately after the tribulation, the great tribulation by the Antichrist, right? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. Remember Paul says in Thessalonians that there'll be the trumpet call. Paul says in uh, Corinthians at the last trumpet, you know, uh, Christ will come and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Back to Revelation, the next seal, the sixth seal. Uh, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black like sackcloth 
and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the skies fell to the earth like fig tree sheds in the wind, and the sky vanished like a scroll that was being rolled up, and every mountain and island re was removed from its place. Kings of the earth and the great ones and so forth hid themselves in caves and all the rest. The, the, the sixth seal is exactly what Jesus, I'm trying to point out that what Jesus is telling the disciples and what we read in Revelation are parallel and they're happening at the same time. And then, um, you know, after, uh, after this, uh, Jesus continues in uh, Matthew's gospel and uh, be begins to talk about what it's gonna be like when he comes back. Nobody will miss it, there'll be a sign. You know, if somebody tells you Christ has already come back, and uh, the sky hasn't fallen in, uh, you don't believe him uh, because they're not telling the truth. And then Jesus goes on, explains more. I know I'm uh, over time here. Uh, but uh, in chapter 7 of Revelation, there are two groups that show up in heaven, okay? Uh, the first group is the 144,000 Jewish people, 12,000 from each tribe. You can read it for yourself in uh, Revelation chapter 7, and they are sealed and protected during this time. The second group that shows up in uh, Revelation uh, is described like this in uh, Revelation chapter seven and uh, verse nine. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that nobody could number from every nation, from all the tribes, peoples, languages, uh, standing before the throne, before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. I think this is the raptured church showing up in heaven. Who are this group of people? All of a sudden, people from every language, tribe, you know, all of a sudden they show up there in Revelation chapter seven. And uh, then one of the elders addressed me, John says, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. I think it's the rapture, I think it's us. We show up in heaven, Revelation chapter seven. And then he goes on, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wow, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, that's ours. That's ours to look forward to. A and then the seventh seal is in, doesn't come till chapter eight, the last seal so that the scroll can be opened. And the last seal, it says here, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. There was total silence. You know what this is? This is the day of the Lord. This is the last seal. It's God's judgment on the world. And we don't have time, but if, we, if you keep reading, you'll see that uh, it's the trumpets and the bowls and the horrible things that come once the church has been rescued. Uh, Paul says in Thessalonians that we are delivered from the wrath of God. You and I will never face the wrath that we deserve because of what Jesus did on the cross. And, uh, and that's why there's the rapture of the church. But please understand just this one simple thing. Part of this seven years is the wrath of Satan. And the last part is the wrath of God. And in my understanding, there's no place in scriptures that says that the church, you know, will not endure the wrath of Satan. We do it, we do it now. But we will never experience the wrath of God because of our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Christmas and we're thankful for the promise of your return and we're thankful, Father, that these promises that we put our faith in uh, will someday turn to sight. And what a great day that will be. And I pray, Father, that you'll open the scriptures to us to grasp and to understand just a little bit more than where we're at, wherever we're at. And that as we keep uh, trying to grow in grace and knowledge, that, Father, uh, hope, the hope that only you can give us, uh, will flood our souls in such a way that it'll make us more bold, that it'll make us more uh, with a desire to meet you face to face so that we uh, do what we can to clean up our act. And uh, more and more, Father, that we would anticipate, like Paul, that we would love your appearing. Rather than being in love with this world, we would anticipate the world to come through Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. Amen.